0: Today on Ag News Daily.
1: We believe it would be best to try to prevent this kind of behavior in the first place Um, so it doesn't get to this point where there are serious allegations of price fixing. Um, So, you know, how do you do this?
0: Good afternoon, listeners. It's another Friday episode here on the Ag News Daily podcast. It's Ashton Carr. Joined by Delaney Howell. And Delaney, I've got to say, I am so happy that it's Friday.
2: I am too. Happy Friday to all our listeners.
0: You don't really get much of a weekend, though, because you'll be doing the panel that you're a part of tomorrow. But it's still going to be, I think, a really exciting weekend for you nonetheless.
2: Yeah, it is. I'm excited to get out here, get on the road and talk to some farmers again, although most of the farmers will be sitting at home. So shout out to any South Dakota farmers, South Dakota corn growers who will be on tomorrow's annual meeting happening virtually. Really excited to be a part of that this year. Absolutely,
0: Delaney, but I am ready to kick off with some news today. And I want to kick things off talking about the coronavirus food assistance program. The USDA has announced additions and revisions to both rounds of CFAP, providing added financial assistance for farmers. FSA Administrator Richard Fordyce tells Ag Reporters this expands CFAP to eligibility to pullet and turfgrass sod producers as well as contract producers of swine and some poultry. He says it also updates payment calculations for CFAP 2 and adds top-up payments for swine, bumping the swine inventory payment rate of 25% up to 50% of estimated economic loss. He says the adjustments will automatically be made for swine top-up payments, but other producers impacted by the changes will need to apply or amend their application between January 19th and February 26th. Undersecretary Bill Northey says these additions are being funded by Leftover Cares Act and Commodity Credit Corporation dollars that were designated for CFAP 1 and CFAP 2, but have not been used. Northey says it's unclear whether the next administration will use funds in the recent omnibus spending bill for additional revisions or roll out a third CFAP program.
2: Well, uh, this is a little different. You know, we don't know yet what the administration will do as far as a say, CFAP program. That's still kind of up in the air. Although I do have a few more updates about the stimulus package that the Biden administration has released. Still unclear on really what agriculture will get out of this deal, other than it does include some additional money and initial extensions for SNAP program payments. And also in the plans is a bipartisan bill called the FEED Act, which would provide funding through local governments to restaurants and nonprofits to prepare meals for needy individuals. So that's their version of what's going on right now as far as agriculture is concerned. So unfortunately, not a lot of updates when it comes to any sort of uh, CFAP or stimulus package as part of this new proposed trillion dollar plan. Well, Delaney, I do have an update
0: talking about the Waterloo Tyson Food Plant, more specifically talking about those managers who have been terminated from the betting pool. Former Tyson Foods Waterloo Plant manager Tom Hart said in his first public comment since the termination, said that nobody bets on how many team members would become sick with COVID-19. He says that the reports of the betting pool among Tyson managers is false and distorted. Hart and former Waterloo Tyson night manager Don Merschbrock, also fired by Tyson, claimed the pool did not exist in the way it had been portrayed in news stories. While they admit that a $5 office pool was created, it was not about how many plant employees would contract the virus. The manager said the office pool was simply a conversation among managers about completion of an exhaustive mitigation effort inside the plant. Hart said they believed their COVID-19 mitigation efforts in the plant would be more successful than what was being done in the community at the time. And I don't I don't know that these comments will really impact how the investigation went because i mean i i don't know if it's exactly final at this point of course you know those managers have been terminated from tyson but i i don't think that these comments are going to really affect anything much but you know what they say delaney there's three sides to a story what one side has to say what the other has to say and what actually happened
2: oh i like that i've never heard that saying i'm not really good with sayings though well, I read that story and it's exactly what I thought about. So, well, that's a good segue then to this story because there is certainly three sides of the story when it comes to the biofuels industry and waivers that are being granted. The EPA is expected to seek comment today, if not maybe into the weekend or early Monday, regarding a potential general waiver that they will. Issue some sort of comment on which would exempt oil refiners from biofuel blending obligations. On January 14th, so yesterday, the EPA announced that it would propose a deadline extension for refiners to comply with the biofuel regulations, but said it hasn't decided on pending waivers of the biofuel laws. So debates have really heated up, it sounds like, here over the past week, especially as we transition into a new administration. But the Trump administration may grant a significant amount of waivers to quote-unquote small oil refiners, allowing them to dismiss compliance with the renewable fuel standards and require them... And also not require them to blend ethanol and gasoline. So we're seeing, of course, politicians such as Senator Chuck Grassley and Joni Ernst and others important to the biofuels industry begging President Trump to not allow nationwide waivers for oil refiners and to, in fact, make them follow through on the um, blending obligations and uh, renewable fuel standards that have been put forth. But we're also seeing folks on the other side of the aisle so to speak, on the oil side of things, really asking for some relief here and saying that oil has been impacted pretty heavily during the coronavirus and they need some much needed relief. So I'm sure this is going to be an ongoing issue as we transition into the new administration, but it's going to be interesting how things do transition over. You're exactly
0: right, Delaney. I think it's going to be a really interesting year. And I think a lot of folks, were really hoping that we left the bad juju in 2020 But I have some potential bad news already in 2021. An agronomist warns soybean farmers who experienced white mold pressure in 2017 and 2019, they better be prepared to manage it again this year. Rick Swenson with North Dakota-based Peterson Farms Feed says the plant disease is nothing new for many Midwestern growers. They experienced a lot of that white mold in 2017 and 2019 and specifically in the same areas. I'm not familiar with white mold, but from what I can assume, it tends to grow in the same spots time and time again. Delaney, I don't know if you can give any insight here, but Swinson says there are several ways to mitigate white mold, which include lowering populations, checking standability and lodging ratings and possibly selecting shorter season maturities. He suggests planting an early maturing bean in problem areas will help the crop finish before August humidity hits. So soybean farmers, be on the lookout for that in 2021, especially if you had some white mold in 2017
2: and 2019. Yeah, I'm not going to lie, and I don't have a whole lot to add to that conversation. I... Don't know a lot about white mold, but that's definitely something we can explore in a further conversation on the podcast. If folks do have questions about that, we can do a little digging into that. But uh, there was some news today that really sparked wheat prices higher and really is the only last piece of news I have for today. Uh, continuing to see rumors and speculations about what's going to go on in Russia. And we saw wheat prices hit hit some of the highest levels in at least six years on the Chicago Board of Trade today after top shipper Russia set a higher than expected export tax. Now, again, this tax will go into effect, I believe, end of February and before all wheat products heading out of the country because they're trying to tamp down domestic prices so far that hasn't really worked to their advantage. And so it does seem that they're actually setting those prices prices a little higher. It's going to be about $61 per ton, it sounds like, as of right now. And that really shot things higher across the grain markets today. So we'll see them finalize those plans. It sounds like Russia's Grain Export Union plans to take part in these ongoing talks with the government and figure out how to set a form term to help with these duties on but it is pointing as far as the news wires are saying that duties are actually going to be higher than what was originally anticipated so it's been kind of friendly for the wheat markets today well Delaney how about we hop into not just the wheat markets but where the markets and all ended for today let's do that Ashton and taking a look across the board here Things were a little bit lower on the day today across the grain complex, except for wheat. Kicking things off with the March corn contract down two and three quarters cents to close at 531 and a half. The May down three to close at 534 and three quarters. In the soybean pits, the March contract down 13 and three quarters to close at 1416. The May down 13 to close at 1414 and three quarters. In the Chicago wheat pits, March higher today on Russian news as they the contract climbed five and a half cents higher to end at 675 and a half. The May up five and a half as well to close at 676 and a half. And taking a look at the livestock markets today, they were higher on news of lower corn and soybean prices as the February live cattle contract added 70 cents to close at 112.77. The April up 97 cents to close at 118.20. In the feeder cattle markets, the March contract adding two forty five to close at one thirty five eighty two. The April up two thirty to close at one thirty eight thirty. And in lean hogs, February adding a dollar sixty two to close at sixty seven ninety two. The April up fifty seven and a half cents to close at seventy two sixty five. And rounding out our markets with the Class Three dairy milk futures, February up twenty six cents today to close at nineteen seventeen. The March up thirty six to close at eighteen ninety nine. Without further ado, Ashton, let's kick it over to my conversation I had with Aaron. Shire of the National Farmers Union to discuss the ongoing price-fixing scandal going on in the protein industry. Well, today I am joined by Aaron Shire, who is the Senior Government Relations Representative for the National Farmers Union. Aaron, thank you so much, first of all, for joining today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
2: Aaron, before we talk about really the bread and butter of this conversation, the protein industry price fixing that's been going on and the National Farmers Union opinion on that and stance on that, tell us a little bit more about what your role entails as the senior government relations representative.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well. So I work for National Farmers Union. We're the second largest general farm organization in the United States with about 200,000 family farmers and ranchers uh, across the country who are members. And my job and my role is to advocate on their behalf um, at the federal level uh, in Congress and executive branch agencies and departments like the U.S. Department uh, of Agriculture, for example.
2: Exactly right. And so with your role, I'm sure you, you've been touching on a lot of different issues this year, the least of which I'm sure has been the the price-fixing scandal that's been going on across various parts of the protein industry. From your stance, give us the update on where National Farmers Union sits on this.
1: Sure. Well, I think that there are many factors Um that uh, are involved in thinking about why has there been uh, issues of price fixing in the livestock uh, and meat processing industries. I think a big part of the problem is structural. A relatively small handful of companies control important nodes in agricultural supply chains. Um, and in this case, since we're talking about the livestock industry, you know, with regard to how, how livestock are bought processed and marketed. Those companies sort of in the middle between farmers and consumers, or even between uh, farmers and say restaurants or other buyers at the retail level. Um, You know, and at the same time, our antitrust or what some people would call uh, anti-monopoly laws are not being enforced vigorously enough by federal agencies for a number of reasons. Um, And then there's also uh, the issue that uh, our antitrust laws themselves may need to be Strengthened. So while these conditions that I've outlined, um, I don't mean to say that because of those, it's a foregone conclusion that companies would conspire to fix prices. This relatively small number of players makes it easier to collude and the lack of vig- vigorous enforcement um, can also open the door uh, to that sort of collusive activity.
2: Right. And there have been some ongoing reports, some investigations, some done by USDA. I'm sure some private investigations have been done as well by companies themselves um, and and third party sources. But do you think that that's been enough? I mean, are those results conclusive or do you think that more needs to be done on that front?
1: Yeah, yeah, great question. You know, NFU supports the legal challenges uh, that are out there, whether they're the private challenges, and you also mentioned um, the public enforcement actions that have been taken or investigations. But um, we believe it would be best to try to prevent this kind of behavior in the first place. Um, So it doesn't get to this point where there are serious allegations of price fixing. Um, So, you know, how do you do this? We think more needs to be done um, given how much consolidation there already is in the livestock and poultry slaughter and processing industries. We should impose a moratorium on mergers and acquisitions above a certain size threshold um, and have an unbiased review of industry structure and function at the moment to try and figure out how to better prevent these things from happening. And we also need to really enforce our existing antitrust laws um, more vigorously and especially in the case of livestock that's the Packers and Stockyards Act.
2: So, Aaron, with a new administration quickly approaching us or the transition of the new administration, what do you think is going to be done to pick up where the Trump administration left the protein price fixing scandal, if you will, off? What What do you think the next steps are? Where do you think that the transition will happen? What will happen from here?
1: Well, one thing I'd like to say is I I don't think we should get too caught up in sort of the notion of price fixing as the issue. I think this all really goes well beyond price fixing. Um, Price fixing is a symptom of an industry that is insufficiently competitive, you know, for farmers to get a fair price for their livestock and for consumers to pay a fair price for what they purchase at the grocery store, we need a competitive livestock industry. So I'm hopeful that under this new administration, uh, there will be more efforts to uh, To work on this issue, I think that could look like um, actually getting some answers out of, uh, for example, the the USDA report that came out following uh, sort of the beginnings of the investigations into uh, the price spreads in beef uh, that we saw as a result, uh, or sort of following the uh, the Holcomb plant fire in Kansas, and also. Um, uh, due to supply chain disruptions during COVID. Um, I think that there is some energy uh, also in the, um, on the question of the beef industry around changing some of the ways uh, that marketing occurs in that industry to ensure greater fairness for farmers and ranchers. So uh, I think those are a couple areas and I think a longstanding concern does have to do with getting clear and better rules um, written that clarify uh, the Packers and Stockyards Act and make it more enforceable, and uh, we're hopeful that uh, the incoming administration will tackle those issues.
2: Yeah, and I think that that leads to my final question. You know, we talked to a lot of farmers and growers. As of lately, especially with increased corn prices, tighter margins for livestock producers, and then the feeling that well, perhaps the prices that they're getting aren't quite as fair as maybe they should be. How do producers and ranchers at a local level? How are they able to make a change happen on such a big issue like this?
1: I think that it's important to tell your story and uh, to to uh, get involved in um, your farm organization, whether that is your local uh, or state farmers union division or um, your local cattle organization or whatever it is within your industry. I think uh, it is important to help people understand um, what it's like to do your job and the market forces you're facing and to find a voice for those um, because a lot of consumers don't necessarily understand um, how these markets work And I think making sure you're finding ways to make sure your voice is heard is really important.
2: Absolutely. It's all about telling your story nowadays, it seems like. Well, Aaron, thank you again for joining today and sharing a little bit more about National Farmers Union stance on this ongoing issue.
1: Thank you so much for, for having me and the opportunity to discuss this really important issue.
2: Well, again, a big thank you there to Aaron for joining us today. Interesting stuff. And it's going to be interesting yet again as we talk about the ongoing administration transition to see what they do to pick up the pieces with where things have been left by the Trump administration uh, with the protein price fixing scandal. Absolutely, Delaney.
0: So folks, if you're wanting to hear more coverage on exactly what's going to happen as we transition into this new administration, what it means for the world of agriculture, be sure to tune in at agnewsdaily.com and follow along on social media as well at Agnewsdaily. Daily. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.